This winter, L.L. Bean wants to help you feel great out there with gear tips and advice for heading outdoors and exploring all the possibilities of the season. Now that it's getting cold out, layering up for warmth is more important than ever. If you're doing something active like snowshoeing, cross-country skiing, or hiking, a good rule of thumb is to start out dressed like it's 10 degrees warmer than it is. So once you start generating body heat, you won't get overly hot. Then layer up or down as conditions require. For more tips, easy how-tos, and inspiring stories, visit llbean.com guide. The battlefield at Gettysburg is primarily known for two things. First, over three days, July 1st through July 3rd, 1863, the bloodiest battle of the Civil War took place here. Second, it was the site of the Gettysburg Address, the famous speech that President Abraham Lincoln delivered four and a half months after the battle on November 19th. Six other presidents, though, Rutherford B. Hayes, Theodore Roosevelt, Calvin Coolidge, Herbert Hoover, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Dwight D. Eisenhower, and one vice president who would later become president, Lyndon B. Johnson, have also delivered speeches at the battlefield. FDR spoke there at least twice. His first address was on Memorial Day, May 30, 1934. The second was an address for the dedication of the Eternal Light Peace Memorial on July 3rd, 1938, which also commemorated the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. One Union and one Confederate veteran unveiled the 47 and a half foot tall memorial. In Roosevelt's nine minute speech, he shared, quote, all of them we honor, not asking under which flag they fought then, thankful that they stand together under one flag now. More than 250,000 people attended the 1938 dedication, including more than 1,800 Civil War veterans, all of them at least in their 90s. Fast forward to near the end of the Cold War, 50 years later, the 125th anniversary, which took place over three days, July 1st through July 3rd, 1988. I was seven years old. Part of this three-day event included a 50th anniversary rededication of the Eternal Light Peace Memorial. However, for this one, there would be no presidential speech. Rather, a famous scientist, Dr. Carl Sagan, would rededicate the memorial, albeit with a smaller crowd, 30,000 this time. Still might as well be a Taylor Swift concert. The speech, co-written with his wife, Andrian, juxtaposed the weapons of the Battle of Gettysburg with the weapons of subsequent wars, highlighting the increased potential for destruction with each war. Sagan used the platform he was given to call for nuclear disarmament, highlighting the need to recognize our humanity as brothers and to work towards peace. I'm Jason Epperson, and today on the America's National Parks podcast, I'd like to play for you that speech from the records of the National Archives. Sadly, the audio is missing one paragraph of the speech toward the end, most likely due to the tape ending and the lapsed time to get a new tape recording. Otherwise, the entirety of the speech was captured. Thank you, Senator Randolph. Our principal speaker is a noted author, scientist, and teacher whose awards and honors are almost beyond either counting or recitation. They span both academic and popular areas, 
reflecting intellectual brilliance as well as deep concern for the future of our race. Born November 9, 1934 in New York City, he journeyed west for post-high school education, winning honors at the University of Chicago. Those early academic achievements presaged the brilliant career that has followed. Dr. Carl Sagan is currently the David Duncan Professor of Astronomy and Space Sciences and Director of the Laboratory for Planetary Studies at Cornell University. Dr. Sagan has established his reputation not only in astronomy, but also in biology, physics, the study of extraterrestrial life, and the advocacy of peace. His scientific research has enhanced understanding of the greenhouse effect on Venus, dust storms on Mars, the organic haze on Titan, and the origin of life itself in the search for life off the planet Earth. He has played a leading role in the Mariner, Viking, and Voyager expeditions to the planets, and for this has received the NASA Medal for Exceptional Scientific Achievement, among many other awards. Dr. Sagan was responsible for the Pioneer 10 and 11 plaques and the Voyager 1 and 2 interstellar records, messages about the human race sent to possible future or other civilizations in space. He is perhaps best known for his Emmy and Peabody Award-winning public television series, Cosmos. His book by the same title is the best-selling science book ever published in the English language. In recent years, Dr. Sagan has devoted much of his time to writing and lecturing about the long-term effects of nuclear warfare. His vision as a scientist of the death and devastation that would be brought about by the effects of radiation has made him a leading spokesman for nuclear disarmament. He is currently president of the Planetary Society, which is a 100,000-member organization and the largest space interest group in the world. He is also serving as distinguished visiting scientist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at the California Institute of Technology. Please welcome with me Dr. Carl Sagan. Thank you, Judge Spicer. I'm very moved and honored to be invited to join you in the celebration of this doleful and instructive event. There were 51,000 human beings who were casualties here, ancestors of some of us but brothers of us all. 
This was the first full-fledged example of an industrialized war. Machine-made arms, railroad transport of men and materiel. This was the first hint of an age yet to come, our age, of what technology bent to the purposes of war might be capable of. In May 1863, a reconnaissance balloon of the Army of the Potomac detected movement of Confederate troops across the Rappahannock River, the beginning of the campaign that led to the Battle of Gettysburg. That balloon was the precursor of the reconnaissance satellite. In all, there were a few hundred artillery pieces used in the three-day Battle of Gettysburg. What could they do? What was war like at that time? Here is a brief comment by Frank Haskell of Wisconsin, who fought in the Union armies here in a letter, a private letter to his brother. We could not often see the shell before it burst, he said. But sometimes, as we faced towards the enemy and looked above our heads, the approach would be heralded by a prolonged hiss, which always seemed to me to be a line of something tangible, terminating in a black globe, distinct to the eye, as the sound had been to the ear. The shell would seem to stop and hang suspended in the air an instant and then vanish in fire and smoke and noise. Not 10 yards away from us, a shell burst among some bushes where sat three or four orderlies holding horses. Two of the men and one horse were killed. A typical event from the Battle of Gettysburg, something like this was repeated tens of thousands of times. Those ballistic projectiles shot out of the cannons that you can see at the Gettysburg Memorial had a range of one or a few miles. The massive explosive was about uh, 20 pounds at most. That is roughly one hundredth of a ton of TNT, enough to kill a few people. The largest chemical explosives used in World War II were the blockbusters, so-called, because they could destroy a city block. They had in them about 10 tons of TNT, a thousand times more than the most powerful armament at the Battle of Gettysburg. That was sufficient to kill a few dozen people. At the very end of World War II, the United States used the first atomic bombs to annihilate two Japanese cities. Those weapons had the equivalent power of 10,000 tons of TNT, enough to kill a few hundred thousand 
people, one bomb. And then a few years later, the United States and the Soviet Union developed the first thermonuclear weapons, the first hydrogen bombs. They had an explosive yield equivalent to 10 million tons of TNT, enough to kill a few million people, one bomb. Each of these steps is a factor of a thousand. From Gettysburg to the blockbuster, a thousand times more power. From the blockbuster to the atomic bomb, a thousand times more yet. From the atomic bomb to the hydrogen bomb, a thousand times more. All in all, a billion times more explosive force from Gettysburg to today. The souls that perished here would find such carnage, the carnage we are capable of today, unspeakable. Today, the United States and the Soviet Union have booby-trapped our planet with 60,000 nuclear weapons, most of them hydrogen bombs. 60,000 nuclear weapons. The direct and long-term consequences of the use of even a third or a half of those nuclear weapons would be without question to annihilate those two nations, to probably destroy the global civilization, and perhaps to destroy the human species. This is too much destructive force. It is too much power. It is foolish to have such technology on this fragile planet. Those 51,000 casualties here, they represented one-third of the Confederate Army, one-quarter of the human army, of the Union Army. But all those deaths, with one exception, were all soldiers. The only exception was one civilian who thought to bake some bread in her own house and was shot through two doors. Her name was Jenny Wade. But in a global thermonuclear war, almost all the casualties, almost all the deaths will be civilians, men, women, and children, including the citizens of nations that had no part in the quarrel which led to the war, nations far away from the northern mid-latitude target zone Everyone is now at risk. In Washington, there is a memorial to the Americans who died in the most recent large American war, the Vietnam War. Some 58,000 Americans died, not a very different number from the number of casualties here at Gettysburg. I ignore as we often do, the million Southeast Asians who were killed in that war. But think of that dark, somber, beautiful, moving 
touching memorial in Washington. Think of how long it is. It's not much longer than from the end of the row here to the end of the row there. 58,000 names. Imagine now that we are so foolish as to permit a nuclear war to occur. And imagine that somehow a similar memorial wall could be built. How long would it be? It would be about a thousand miles long. It would extend from here to, I don't know, St. Louis. But of course, there would be no one to build it and no one to read it. It is time for us to learn from the sacrifice of those who fell here. And it is time to act. In 1945, at the close of World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union were effectively invulnerable. Consider the United States bounded east and west by vast impassable oceans, north and south by weak and friendly neighbors, the most powerful armed forces, the most powerful economy on the planet. We had nothing to fear. So we built nuclear weapons and their delivery systems. We engaged in an arms race with the Soviets. And at the end of that time, everyone in the United States is exquisitely vulnerable to a decision on our lives and deaths made in Moscow 20 minutes ago. And likewise, in perfect symmetry, the Soviet Union, which had the largest standing army in the world in 1945, no significant military threats it had to worry about. It also engaged in this nuclear arms race with the United States. And today, everyone in the Soviet Union is exquisitely vulnerable to a decision made in Washington. The lives and deaths of every Soviet citizen is in the hands of leaders in a foreign country. I say we have done something immensely foolish. We have spent 43 years in making ourselves vulnerable to instant annihilation, all done in the name of patriotism and safety. Now, all that cost something. The Cold War didn't come for free. How much did the Cold War cost? The American cost, we can easily tabulate. The Soviet cost is more difficult to tabulate, but almost certainly is roughly the same number. By the time the present administration leaves office next January, the United States will have spent, in 1987 dollars, how much money on the Cold War? The answer is $10 trillion. That's the one with the big T, trillion. Of this sum, more than a third has been spent by the Reagan administration, which has added more to the national debt than all previous administrations back to the presidency of George Washington combined. How much is $10 trillion? What could you buy for $10 trillion? The answer is everything.
You could buy everything in the United States except the land for $10 trillion. Everything. All the houses, airplanes, factories, skyscrapers, highways, railroads, stores, homes, food, clothing, medicine, furniture, toys, games, babies' diapers, everything but the land in the United States could be bought for what we have spent on the Cold War. A business that spent its capital so recklessly and with so little effect would have been bankrupt long ago. Executives who could not recognize so clear a failure of corporate policy would long before now have been dismissed by the stockholders. What else could the United States have done with that money? Not all of it, because prudent defense is of course necessary, but some fraction of it, a third or a quarter, something like that. We could have made major progress towards eliminating hunger, homelessness, infectious disease, illiteracy, ignorance, poverty, not just in the United States, but worldwide. We could have helped make the planet agriculturally self-sufficient and removed many of the causes of violence and war. And this could have been done with enormous benefit to the American economy. Think what prodigies of human inventiveness in art, architecture, medicine, science, and technology could have been supported for decades with the tiniest fraction of that money. I say we have done something immensely foolish. We have been locked in a deadly embrace with the Soviet Union, always propelled each side by the malefactions of the other, always looking in the short term to the next congressional election, to the next presidential election, to narrow local politics and never seeing the big picture. A man associated with this community, Dwight Eisenhower, said the following about this very situation. He said, the problem in defense spending is to figure out how far you should go without destroying from within what you are trying to defend from without. It would be very good to pay some attention to what President Eisenhower said. What is clearly needed is a comprehensive test ban treaty to stop all future nuclear weapons tests because they are the technological driver that propels on both sides the nuclear arms race. We need to abandon the utter and ruinously expensive foolishness of Star Wars, which detracts, not adds, to the national security of the United States. And we need to make safe, massive, bilateral, thoroughly inspected reductions in the strategic and tactical nuclear arsenals of the United States, the Soviet Union, and all other nations. That's obviously what we should be doing. Because nuclear weapons are comparatively cheap, the big ticket item is conventional weapons. There is an extraordinary opportunity that faces us right now 
a miracle has happened in the Soviet Union. There's somebody not just reasonable, but smart, with a long-term vision, with concern for precisely the same problems in his nation that we should be concerned with in ours. And therefore, there is a clear commonality of purpose. Mr. Gorbachev has proposed massive conventional force reductions in Europe. He's willing to do it asymmetrically, in which the Soviets reduce their forces more than the Americans do. And I say that is in the interest of peace, and it is in the interest of a sane and hearty American economy, we ought to meet him halfway. The world spends today $1 trillion a year on armaments, most of it conventional arms. Much of that money is spent only because the nations are unable to reconcile one to another. That money is taken out of the mouths of poor people. It is taken out of effective economies. It is a scandalous waste, and we ought not to countenance it. It is time to learn from those who fell here, and it is time to act. In part, this civil war was about liberty about extending the benefits of the American Revolution to all Americans, to every American, to make true to everyone the promise of liberty and justice for all. I'm concerned about a lack of historical pattern recognition. Today, the fighters for freedom do not necessarily wear three-cornered hats and play the fife and drum. They come in other costumes. The creed of liberty means nothing if it is only our liberty being so proudly proclaimed. People elsewhere are crying, no taxation without representation. And in South Africa, for example, or the West Bank, or Central America, in increasing numbers they are crying, give me liberty or give me death. Why are we unable to hear them? We have powerful, nonviolent means of persuasion available to us, we Americans. Why are we not using these means? It is time to learn from those who fell here. It is time to learn and to act. This war was mainly about union. Union in the face of differences. You know, a million years ago, there were no nations on the planet. There were no tribes. The humans who were here were divided into small family groups of a few dozen people who wandered. That was the horizon of our identification. Since then, the horizons have expanded from such a wandering hunter-gatherer group to a tribe, to a horde, to a small city-state, to a nation, and today, to immense nation-states. The average person on the earth today owes his or her primary allegiance to a group of something like 100 million people. It seems very clear that if we do not destroy ourselves first, the unit of primary identification of human beings will before long be the entire planet 
and the entire human species. And to my mind, that is the key question, whether that fundamental unit of identification happens before we destroy ourselves. The identification horizons have been broadened in this place 125 years ago at great cost, at cost to the North and the South, at cost to blacks and whites. But we recognize that that expansion of identification horizons was just. Today, there is an urgent, practical necessity to work together in arms control, in the world economy, in the global environment. It is clear that the nations of the world now can only rise and fall together. It is not a question of one nation winning at the expense of another. We must all help one another. On occasions like this, it's customary to quote homilies, phrases by great men and women we've all heard before, and we tend not to hear. Let me mention one, a phrase that was said here just a little less than 125 years ago by President Lincoln. With malice toward none, with charity for all. We tend not to hear. With malice toward none, with charity for all. That's what is expected of us. Not just because our ethics commend it, our religious teaching preaches it, but because it is necessary for human survival. Here's another one. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Let me vary it a little. A species divided against itself cannot stand. A planet divided against itself cannot stand. Can we hear to be inscribed on this monument is a lovely phrase on this eternal light peace memorial which is about to be rekindled and rededicated. The phrase is, a world united in the search for peace. A world united in the search for peace. We need more than anniversary sentimentalism and holiday piety. We must confront the conventional wisdom where necessary. We must act where necessary. The real triumph of Gettysburg was not, I think, in 1863, but 50 years later, when the veterans. It is time now for us to emulate them. NATO and the Warsaw Pact, Israelis and Palestinians, whites and blacks, Americans and Iranians, the developed and the underdeveloped worlds. The challenge for us is to do it not after the carnage and the mass murder, but instead of the carnage and the mass murder. It is time to learn from those who fell here it is time to act. Thank you very much.
Ah, you hear that? The sound of a crackling fire. But this isn't just any old campfire. This is a smokeless solo stove fire pit. How can you tell? Well, you don't hear any coughing, hand wafting, or people complaining about smoke in their eyes. All you can hear are logs turning to coals as the night sky becomes a cosmic canvas. With Bonfire by Solo Stove, you get a fire pit that's portable, burns smoke off before it ever leaves the pit, and is backed by a lifetime warranty. Use promo code PARKS20 to get $20 off your next purchase of $200 or more at solostove.com. By the late 1980s, the Harper's Ferry Center, which is where much of the National Park Service's interpretive material and programs originate from, was creating materials in a number of different media, including audio recordings for listening stations, slideshows and videos, and films for broadcast, loans, and exhibition in visitor centers. Initially, it appeared that the records relating to the 125th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg were limited to 12 quarter-inch sound recordings. However, as the processing proceeded, it was discovered that there were indeed moving image film rolls that accompanied the quarter-inch sound, which were incorrectly identified on the shipping list. Original recordings could be used in multiple productions, which may be the reason these records were incorrectly identified, and it can take some research to bring them together. Preserved in the holdings at the National Archives are 12 quarter-inch audio reel-to-reel tapes and 11 16-millimeter silent color film reels. Two of the 12 audio tapes contain most of Sagan's 1988 speech, as well as recordings of the activities of the three-day event, while three of the 11 film reels contain just parts of Sagan's speech. The fact that we have these records in multiple formats highlights one of the challenges facing a special media archivist. One of the difficulties in trying to synchronize motion picture film and separate audio on quarter-inch magnetic tape is that the recording equipment runs at different rates. Motion picture film is captured at 24 frames per second, while quarter-inch audio is generally captured at 7.5 inches per second. 36 feet of 16 millimeter film is the equivalent to one minute of running time and 37 and a half feet of quarter inch audio is the equivalent to one minute of running time. So they don't quite match up. Over the course of time, the audio begins to drift so that the audio occurs ahead of the image. In order to rectify this, they can try to remove snippets of dead air to try to make the image and the audio synchronize. But if the event is a continuous speech with little or no breaks and pauses, they're unable to faithfully sync the two together. Which is why we do have some film of what you just heard, but it's best listened to in a podcast. Gettysburg, as the site of one of the most crucial battles of the American Civil War, stands as a reminder of the costs of division and conflict. It can be seen as a symbol of the tragedy that ensues when a nation is divided against itself and it serves as a historical lesson on the importance of unity and the dangers of unresolved conflicts. The sacrifice of thousands at Gettysburg can be seen as a testament to the high price of war, but this place also symbolizes hope. Hope that out of such devastating conflict, a stronger, more united nation could emerge. It can inspire us to work towards a world where such sacrifices are no longer necessary. Gettysburg, if anything to me, will always be a place that inspires us to pursue peace. 
This episode of the America's National Parks podcast was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, and written with tons of help from the National Archives. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review. If you're new here, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes delivered to your feed. If you're looking for photos and tips about visiting national parks, check out our America's National Parks Facebook group. And if you're interested in RV travel, we hope you'll also check out our RV Miles podcast and YouTube channel. Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag Be an Outsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. And by Solo Stove. Use promo code PARKS20 to get $20 off your next purchase of $200 or more at solostove.com. <laughs>